0: All right, so um, last time we looked at Psalm 102, and uh, that was a new that was that was for me. Psalm 102 was new uh, new information that uh, essentially uh, it we kind of get to eavesdrop in Psalm 102 on a conversation between God the Father and His Son. That uh, that that actually um, it it was it it was kind of a foreshadowing of the conversation and the heart of the Messiah in the Garden of Gethsemane as He talked to God and uh, the affliction that He faced being abandoned by those close to Him, and, um, and, and the pain of saying, not My will, but Your will be done. Uh, we heard the Father encouraging the Son that even when everything falls apart, when heaven and earth passes away, the Son Himself would remain the same with the Father eternally. And that's what His hope could be even when it seemed like everything else was falling away. Tonight, we're going to be in Psalm 110, and we'll be invited to kind of listen to another conversation within the Trinity today, which I don't know if you knew that, but there's some of these prophetic passages in, in the Psalms. They're conversations between Father, Son, and Spirit. We get to kind of see the, uh, the perichoresis is the, is the term of the, uh, of the Trinity, their, their cooperation and their teamwork, uh, the way that they interact with one another in ministry uh, to, uh, to creation, so Psalm 110. It's only seven verses, written by King David, but they are loaded. So, like my my sheet is just covered in scripture because here's this Psalm is quote is the most quoted um, Psalm in the New Testament. Verse one is quoted seven times directly, and the whole Psalm is quoted or alluded to in really um, specific fashion 27 times, and then it just kind of uh, sits as um, a Foreshadowing in a variety of spaces, uh, where even Jesus, like when Jesus, uh, when when the high priest commands him to to answer whether or not he is the uh, whether or not he is the Messiah as he is claimed, uh, he actually his statement is an allusion to this, not a direct quote. But over and over and over again, this is all over the New Testament, and uh, it pictures Jesus first as Lord and then as King and then as priest, and finally as judge. So, uh, we're going to jump in here at verse 1. We're just going to read the first line to start. It says, the Lord, all caps, says to my Lord. Just mixed case, uh, capital L and lowercase is O-R-D. The Lord says to my Lord. So, we talked a little bit about this. This is not the only place this happens. It's, a co- it's common where there are two Lords mentioned, and they're two different names for God. When it's all caps, uh, that usually means Yahweh. That's the Great I Am. Uh, that's the name that God declared to Moses when he asked who, uh, when when Moses asked who I should tell the people that has sent me. He, he's the self-existent, self-sufficient One God. And then the second Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai, which just means uh, it means uh, like Lord of Lords, King of Kings, ruler, master, over all. And it speaks of the supreme authority and power of Yahweh. So for the Jewish mind, living before the time of Messiah, Jesus, the question about this passage would be, who is the second Lord that King David speaks about? Because this is not just, O Lord, our Lord, as other psalms, it's, the Lord says to my Lord. It's, the, it's instead of, O Yahweh, our Adonai, it is, Yahweh says to Adonai. So the, the Israelite mind is reading this and they're saying, wait a second, this one's different than all the others. So you could read the text. Have you ever played the game, Who Am I? Like, if ever done, Have you ever done these Who Am I riddles? So you could read it like this. You could read You could read the text, Who Am I? I am seated at the right hand of Yahweh. I am called by God's name Adonai. I am a king who will rule, but also a priest forever. I will judge the nations and set up my throne from Zion. I am the Lord, the priest, the judge, and soon coming king of kings, who am I? Now, you all know who that is. Probably, hopefully, it isn't very difficult for you to solve that riddle, but when the Israelites are reading this, they're like, whoa, who is that? That's not anybody that we know of in our story. If you're in the the shoes of an average Israelite living at the time when David wrote this around 1000 BC, all your life, you've heard the Shema, which is the foundational text of Israelite belief, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it begins in verse 4, hear, O Israel the Lord, Yahweh, is our God, and Yahweh is one. You've heard all your life that Yahweh is one, and now Yahweh is talking to someone else. Who is it? You would have grown up believing there's one God, one Lord, who was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, uh, the Lord of Moses, and the Lord of David, Yahweh. And uh, sometimes addressed as Adonai, but now you read Yahweh speaking to Adonai. So who is the other Lord? Who is this king and priest at the right hand of God? And even more confusing, why does King David say that it's the other Lord that is his Lord? Okay, Are, are you tracking with me about why this, is so, why this would be so strange to the Israelites? So he doesn't call Yahweh his Lord. He calls Adonai, whom Yahweh is speaking to, his Lord. So who's the second Lord? Well, Jesus... Leaves no doubt about this verse, okay? Uh, in Matthew chapter 22, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, this is verse 41, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, The son of David. So he said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Because he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So the context of Matthew 22 is all of Jesus' ministry coming to a head, right? He's he's come into Jerusalem. It's the last week leading up to Passover and the cross, and Jesus uh, has ridden in on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, and the crowds are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees are ticked. I mean, they hated this. And he's at, he, probably, he also has flipped over the, the tables in the temple. And so these groups are coming to him and they're trying to trap him. And that's what's going on in Matthew 22. And uh, he has so far um, stopped two of their attempts to trip him up. And now they ask them this question. Now, now he turns the tables on them and starts to ask them questions. He asks them two questions. It's kind of like a two-move checkmate. Did you know in chess... That you, I was reading up on chess because I made those statements about whooping up on the teens uh, from the pulpit, so I was reading up on chess. And then uh, the two-move checkmate is a, is, a, is, a, is a move that if, if uh, the other player is the white player going first, there's, if they make a certain move, and then you make a move, and then they, they, they make a move, and you respond with one more move, you can checkmate them in two moves, right? So I was reading all this stuff. I'm like, I'm watching for these openings so that I can just pommel these teens and put them in... No, I'm just... <laughs> I won... I, it was, didn't go as swimmingly as I had hoped, but I did win. Um, so, anyway, uh, it's a two-move checkmate, okay? So he sets them up, first of all, with a question. He says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And so every Jew, young Jewish boy or girl could have answered this question. The Messiah had to be, they knew from the prophecies, a son of David. And so the Gospel of Matthew, which was written to the Jews, starts with this question starts with this line in Matthew 1.1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, okay? Everybody knows the Messiah, Jesus Messiah, had to be the son of David. So the Pharisees answer that correctly. They say, well, he would be the son of David. And Jesus is like, I got you. You moved the right piece. I've got you set up now. They're taking the bait. Step into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. You know how it goes. So he, he set up that move. And so he says, okay, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Then it says they were totally stumped. No one could say a word in reply. Why? Jesus is making two important points. The first point he's making is a point of time. If the promised Messiah was just a far distant descendant of David, how could David have called him my Lord all the way back then? If he's just a descendant back when David was alive. The answer would have to be, that Messiah existed before being born as a descendant of David, that he's eternal. Okay, so he's making a point of time. Whoever David is talking to is eternal. And one of the last things Jesus says about himself in Revelation 22:16 is, I am the root and the offspring of David. So he's both, that he's both the descendant of David, but he's also eternal having existed with God before time began. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings are from old, from everlasting. So he both was the root of David and from old, the everlasting. So that's the first point Jesus is making. The second point is a point of of, of the Messiah's nature. He says, If the promised Messiah was just a human, a normal son born into David's line, why would David call him Lord, using a title Adonai that was normally used for God? Clearly, the Messiah was going to be something more than just David's descendant, and so these points of his pre-existence and his divine nature are are something that Jesus has been contesting all through his ministry. In John uh, eight fifty eight, he says that he says, "Before Abraham was born, I am," and that was. Uh, one of the first statements he made that really draws a lot of attention to him. So he's been making this point from the beginning that, my, uh, that who I am is both fully God and fully man. And so he attributes this psalm specifically to Messiah and to himself, which means this is one of those, these, this is one of those passages that you can discuss with um, the deists of our world and with Uh, Those who dispute Jesus' divinity and those who um, think, think there is a God but aren't sure who God is. Well, there is a person in history who claimed very clearly, I am the God that created the world. So you can't merely like Jesus. You can't just like His teaching. You can't just like His kindness. Not if you understand what He is saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 22 in referencing Psalm 110. This is why Doubting Thomas... You know, Doubting Thomas, he says, I, I, I can't believe that Jesus is alive until I see his wounds. And when he does see and touch his wounds, his response is, my Lord and my God. My, it's, what it is is Kyrios Theos, which would be the equivalent of saying Yahweh Adonai, which would be the equivalent of saying Messiah and God. That's what he's saying. So verse 1 continues the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your, for your feet yahweh says to adonai sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet uh, the the scriptures are so amazing because it is story after story that is all linked together joseph is the typecast of what's happening in verse 1 joseph the the coat of many colors and all of that joseph would be lowered for a little while, right? Lowered into the cistern, then in slavery, then uh, seemingly coming out of the cistern and, and finding favor, only to be thrown into prison again and facing certain death, but eventually is lifted up to the right hand of Pharaoh, and all his former enemies became a footstool, literally. This idea of footstool was actually first uh, from Egyptian rule. The Pharaoh always had a footstool and it was to show his absolute authority over everything beneath the throne. That he was at rest and everything was under him. And so this idea of footstool is, this, uh, is then a reference to that. And Joseph would be the first typecast who was literally lifted up uh, so that his enemies were under him. And the New Testament writers uh, highlight that this is now Jesus. Jesus is the new Joseph. Uh, Mark records the actual event. Mark 16 verse 19 says, So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So that's the fulfillment of Psalm 10 verse 1. He literally, they, they saw Him raised up and sat down at the right hand of God. Peter on the day of Pentecost used this verse to prove the resurrection and ascension. In Acts chapter 2, 32 to 35, he says, This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So he says when Jesus was raised up on the cross, that was like the moment it looked like he had been thrown back into prison, but then he came out of the tomb and that was his coronation and the footstool was put underneath him and all of his enemies under his feet. The author of Hebrews uses this verse to prove his finished work on the cross. Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So, a couple words of hope for you. What does it mean that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God? The scriptures clearly believe that this verse has been fulfilled in Jesus. So, what does it mean? Well, first of all, it's what we talked about all through Holy Week it is finished. He can sit down, and this is the picture that I'm imagining. You know, after creation, God rested. On the seventh day, God rested after creation, and now Jesus is resting after completing the work of salvation. All of redemption is finished. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, for everyone who believes will not perish, but have eternal life. The, the work of salvation is finished, and so Jesus is resting from that work because he's, he's declared it done, just as God rested from the work of creation. And secondly, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God is a declaration of not only his authority, but of ours, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and now I say to you, go in that same authority and do what? Make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. Look at how Paul expands on this thought, the idea of God's author- or Christ's authority in Ephesians 1, verses 18 to 23. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Which means for us, first of all, rest in Jesus because he has authority. Watchman Nee, uh, if you want to read an old book that's just a real good book, this was written in 1964, it's called Sit, Walk, Stand. And he builds, the, he builds his whole case for how we walk and stand in Jesus for first of all, how we rest. Understanding our position in his authority. He says, first and foremost, the Christian is asked to come and sit. We are to rest in the finished work of Christ and in His position at the Father's right hand, both interceding and reigning. Interceding for us and reigning over all things. So we can rest in Jesus. This passage also says we should wait in Jesus. It's interesting. Yahweh says to Adonai, says to Messiah, now that you've finished the work of redemption, even, even you who has all authority in heaven and earth has to wait until the Father finally puts all His enemies under His feet. The disciples asked Jesus, hey, when, when is the end going to come? And Jesus said, I don't know. Only the Father knows that. In other words, I have to wait. I have to wait. And while we're waiting, you should concern yourself less with when He's coming and more with being ready for His coming. He's going to come but in the meantime, you need to wait in Jesus. You just need to be ready. You need to abide. You, you need to continue to, uh, you need to have oil for your lamp. That's a, a parable he tells in response to their questions. The enemies and problems, even for Jesus, don't just disappear straight away. And that's why Jesus promises that you will have trouble in this world, but, the, but also you can take heart because he has overcome this world. That's a, an, an indirect reference to these verses. Jesus is instructed to sit until an appointed time when His enemies will fully and finally be under His feet. So our sense of peace is not meant to be dependent on all problems, all enemies, and all worries being removed. Peace isn't just the absence of storms. In fact, we are asked to rest even in the midst of the waves. Our peace comes from knowing that we know the One who is above all and controls all, and on that basis, He bids us to sit in the boat and rest with Him. He's like, hey... This is a long journey across the boat. Why are you worried about the storm? Let's all let's just nap. Let's rest. Let's put our feet up on the footstool. All of our enemies are going to be brought beneath it. All the storms are going to be fully and finally calmed. I'm in charge of it all. I'm not going to let you drown. So just rest. Rest in me. Wait in me. And then lastly, count on me. There is always an until. Did you see that? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your, your enemies a footstool. The until is a... It's a promise that it will happen. It's going to happen, but you just have to wait until it does. So you might have to wait, but He's going to do it. Our enemies and our concerns will not go on forever. So rest and wait until He takes care of it. You can count on it. He will, okay? So some good news in that verse there. Verse 2, it says, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. So His authority... As Lord is expressed in the first verse. Now, his authority as king is being expressed here. Uh, so, Yahweh says he will extend the scepter of Adonai, and he will rule, Adonai will rule in the midst of his enemies by that scepter. Now, here's a question that commentators ask, and that the Jews would have asked Is this Zion? Zion's another name for Jerusalem, the ruling city of God's people. So, is this Zion in heaven, or is this Zion on earth? What's he talking about? And the answer is, well, it couldn't be Zion in heaven because he won't have no enemies in the new heaven and the new earth, okay? He, so, he say, so, so it would seem that the prophecy says is talking about the Zion on earth. But we know that Jesus, the King of kings, is in heaven. So how is he ruling in Zion here on earth among his enemies? We are the scepter by which his rule is extended. We are his scepter. And by the scepter of his body, outstretched, so to speak, he will rule among his enemies in the world, amongst the flesh, amongst the brokenness of the world. He will rule by his people who are sanctified, set apart to him. We've been given that authority. Roger Williams. Anybody know who Roger Williams is from your American history? He, yeah? Who is he? Okay, he founded, he founded Rhode Island. He's also thought to be kind of the founder of the First Baptist Church, okay? Roger Williams, he wrote this about, uh, about Psalms, about Psalm 110 in particular. He said, as his scepter, when we evangelize in his name, pray in his name, cast out demons in his name, heal in his name, his reign is being extended not in the safe realms of heaven, but in the midst of his enemies here on the battleground." of earth. This is why the mission of the church can't be stopped. This right here. This is why the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Because, and this is why persecution multiplies his body, the church. When, when governments outlaw Christianity and the church goes under, underground, it grows. When, when nations rise and when people persecute the people of God, they grow because Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies in in a world where he is rejected and chastised and put to death he is ruling and reigning and bringing to life his kingdom through the scepter of his people and ruling in the midst of his enemies isn't that cool so verse 3 your troops will be willing on your day of battle arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn you will receive the dew of your youth okay Uh, another translation says that uh, your your troops will volunteer. So this is for all the Tennessee fans out there. Okay, this is this is a Tennessee verse right here. It says your troops will willingly volunteer an army of volunteers. He describes and uh, commentators say this is probably a prophetic reference to the gospel breaking forth in the Gentile world. That's you and me, all us Tennessee. We're we're all Gentiles, I think. Right? Any Jews in here? Okay, we're all Gentiles. We're all Gentiles, and then this, uh, this, in my translation, it says holy majesty, but maybe the mo- most, most literal translation of the Hebrew word is holy garments, and again is a description of the gift and anointing of the Holy Spirit prophesied in Joel. So sometimes Joel uh, chapter 2 verses 14 uh, through 16 are connected to this little uh, reference of the volunteers of God anointed by the Spirit. The latter phrase in this passage, from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. It's a little more difficult. I won't bore you with all the details, but the consensus consensus is that like the dew comes in the morning, which is every morning or the frost, so we will have the vigor of our Messiah to face each new day as a youth has limitless energy. So God's people, His willing volunteers, sacrificing themselves daily for His kingdom, will again and again renew themselves in the holy garment of His Holy Spirit to fight the battle day after day after day. Day after day after day. That's kind of what this passage is saying. When this text speaks of His people volunteering freely in the day of His power, it is literally saying, your people are free will offerings. And so a lot of people think that this is what Paul had in mind in Romans 12 when he, when he said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, to volunteer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed like the dew every morning... With the, with the vigor of the Holy King by His Holy Spirit. That's kind of what they, that's what they think Paul is referencing. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. You'll be able to have, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the mind of Christ. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, one day, I, I don't know if you knew this, but there will be work in heaven too. There's going to be work in heaven. I don't have time to unpack all that. There's going to be work in heaven. Like Work is actually a gift. It's only sin that cursed God work. Work when it's meaningful and purposeful. We all know this, right? Some of you, your hobby is work. Like some of you like to garden. That's work. Like that's hard work. But it can be very fulfilling when we find joy and purpose in the things that we're doing. Work was originally a gift. The uh, parallel to work would be stewardship. God gave us stewardship with Him, to be co-creators in His great world. So in heaven, there will be work. And in heaven, we will be that army of willing volunteers. Pick me, pick me, pick me. Can I do it? Can I serve? Can I do it? And that's why, that's why uh, the New Testament is full of language that says we're the body of Christ. Who are, we're the hands and feet. We are, we are the ones who do His work in the world now. We are the scepter, so to speak. But the challenge. So one day we're that we're all like we we will be fighting like in a Christ-like way to serve Jesus in every way. You know what I mean? But the challenge is today to follow closely and to put your hand up in this age. Right? One day when everything is at peace, it will be it will be easy. But the challenge and the call for us right now is to be that way living sacrifices. Pick me, pick me. Let me serve. How how can I help? How can I build your kingdom? Putting in another way, was it a challenge for the people in King David's day to want to follow and serve David when he reigned in majesty from Jerusalem and there was peace in the kingdom? Was that a challenge? Or was the challenge to follow David when he was on the run, hiding in caves, being a king in exile? So 1 Samuel 22.2 records there was a group of people who followed him in this difficult time. It says, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to David and he became captain over them. I don't know if you're picking up on the analogy that I'm drawing here, but this motley—this is, this is part of the way that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. He says, the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says, those who are in distress who recognize their lack of, who recognize who are discontented with the mess of the world, who, those, those who have debt, they know that they'll never pay, are invited to come and be his servants, to, to be with him. This motley crew of people in distress and in debt and filled with discontentment because of the brokenness of the world, they followed David in the day of his exile when he was hunted and despised. But when David came into his kingdom and reigned, these were the men and women that were given the highest positions in the land. And this is supposed to be a picture for those of us who follow the true king today. Sometimes things aren't as easy as we'd hoped. That Jesus is despised and is away from his earthly kingdom and not all of his glory has been established like we look forward to. One day his kingdom will be reestablished and his people will volunteer freely in the day of his power. But the question for us is will we offer ourselves up in service today. That's a challenge for us in these verses. Verse four, okay, this is another, this is the other, verse one and verse four are the two verses that are most frequently referenced in the New Testament. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you, he's talking, still talking to Adonai, right? You, Adonai, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right, so before reading this verse, if I were to ask you, who would you say are the greatest or most important people in the Old Testament? Anybody being honest, Melchizedek would have popped into your head. Anybody? Okay. Probably other people like Abraham, Moses, King David, Noah, Elijah, Esther, Joseph, Joshua, Daniel. I doubt anybody automatically thinks of who the psalmist mentions here. Yet according to Scripture, Melchizedek is greater even than Abraham himself. Okay? The father, Father Abraham, right? But Melchizedek is greater even than Abraham. And Melchizedek's a mysterious character. If you have overlooked him, you could be forgiven because he's only mentioned in two whopping verses in the Old Testament, okay? Uh, So then why is Yahweh talking about him here? Well, we get a lot more clue in the New Testament. Hebrews 5 verse 11 says, concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. So hopefully now... You're not dull of hearing, and even more so, hopefully, I'm not dull of teaching. So I'm going to try and help you understand why Yahweh talks about Melchizedek here. So Jesus is a king ruling forever from Zion, right? From from the new heaven and one day on the new earth. Now we read that he will also be a priest forever ruling from Zion. So to be called king and priest, this would be another verse that would be really difficult for the Israelites because according to Old Testament law, the offices of priest and king were kept entirely separate. Okay, they they could not overlap. You couldn't be both. Anybody know what tribe the priest came from? Levi, Levi. That's correct. And what tribe did God designate as the royal kingly tribe? Levi. That's right, Judah. Yep, Levi and Judah. Okay, there were severe consequences. Okay, for anyone who attempted to merge the two roles of priest and king. One example would be King Uzziah, a mostly good king. Okay, he was named as a godly king. It says that, that he was blessed and he had success after success. And in fact, if you go and read, you can look this up in Second Chronicles 26. Most of that chapter talks about what a great king he was. But in verse 16, there is a dreaded but. Okay, it talks about everything that he did well. And then it says, but, verse 16, after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in, confronted him, and said, it's not right for you Uzziah to burn incense to the Lord. Why? Because it's against the law for the, king and the pri- for kings and priests, for one person to be a king and priest. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron from the tribe of Levi who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary for you've been unfaithful and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple. Leprosy broke out on his forehead, which is like the ultimate like faux pas, right? When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous and excluded from the temple of the Lord. Whoa. So he started to see himself above God's law. He was the king and could do as, as he pleased, so he thought, and with his heart, he hardened it towards God, he did a very stupid thing, usurping the role that God had ordained for the priests. He went into the temple and burned incense to the Lord. Why did God make such a big deal about this? Why was the judgment upon Uzziah so severe? Well, we know now, in hindsight, that the law about priests and kings was because they have two distinct roles, okay? And only one person was going to be able to fill... Both roles. See, kings represented God to the people. Priests represented people to God. Kings were known for strength and judgment. Priests were known for sympathy and service, love and mercy, atonement and forgiveness, guidance and teaching. Jesus combines the things that no human could combine on their own. He's the lion and the lamb. He's the judge and the savior. He's the priest and the king. William MacDonald writes, one of the extraordinary features of the kingdom is that the Lord Jesus will combine in his person the dual offices of king and priest. It is a combination that is highly dangerous in the case of mere human rulers. Think about the emphasis in our world about the separation of church and state and what happens when church gets mixed up with state and powers are abused and bribes are exchanged and all kinds of mess occurs. That's a spiritual reality. They're not to be mixed in, a, in, in the sense that they have two different roles. Okay? Uh, and I'm not trying to speak politically i'm talking about the reason that that is a conversation in our world is because that is the order that god has set okay so he says the loud long cry for separation of church and state has not been without valid cause but the combination is ideal church and state when jesus is the ruler uncorrupted kingship and spiritual priesthood will give the world an administration such as it has longed for but has never known So Uzziah is blaspheming by mixing those two roles because there's only one who can fulfill it adequately. There's only one who can do both uncorruptedly. For Israelites, a major question is if priests have to come from Levi and kings come from Judah, how can one person be both priest and king? I want to talk to you about that in just a minute. But a lesson here would be that we should be careful about hoping to mix the priesthood and the Kinghood. Okay, for for P, our hearts are bent towards hoping in politics to be our Savior. If we could just change the president, if we could just change all, if we could just change world governance, if we could just get this country in order, if we could just uh, di- diplomatically settle some of these things, that's not the order. The only one who can mix priesthood and kingship is Jesus. All other human attempts will fail, and by The Scriptures are blasphemous to God. Jesus is the only priest and king. Okay? So, how can a priest, how can one person be priest and king? What David heard in this passage is there's going to be a new order. A new order. The order of Melchizedek. Not one coming from the order of the Levites and not one coming from the tribe of Judah, but an order of Melchizedek. And so David heard and recorded this. When David heard and recorded this, it had been about a thousand years since Melchizedek had been around. He got a couple verses in Genesis 14, and uh, I want, want to look at those, okay? So the background here for Genesis 14, Abraham and his nephew, they've been living together and traveling together, but they're getting too numerous in their livestock and helpers, so they decided to go their separate ways. And they look over the land in front of them. Abraham left the choice up to Lot as to what he wanted. Okay, so Lot chose the valley of Jordan to dwell in and ended up in the ungodly city of... Anybody? Sodom. Yes. He went after the best of what he saw, but it came with a cost. We know that story. Uh, Actually, there's two stories. This is the first of the two stories. The kings from the east came down to Sodom, uh, what would eventually become Babylon and Persia, and they came against Sodom and Gomorrah and took people and goods from these cities and including... uh, Included among those people were Lot and his family, so Abraham hears about this. He's like he's he takes up an army to go and rescue his nephew and his family, and he goes and like wreck shop. Okay, like he just lays a whooping on these kings with a smaller army, and just a, he's just a shepherd boy of a livestock a livestock herder, and he goes and just totally tears them up. And as he's returning from this great victory with a bunch of loot, he's met by two kings. Okay. Genesis 14, verse 17 is where the story picks up. It says, After he returned from defeating uh, these kings, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom, meanwhile, said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. So we have two kings who came to meet Abraham. The first king mentioned is the king of Sodom. And he proposes one offer. I think given how Sodom is portrayed in the Bible, it would be fair to say that this king is not the godliest of men. And his offer is portrayed ultimately in the grand story of Scripture as a temptation. Okay? It's a temptation. He says, you keep all the goods, just give me the people. Okay, Why did Abram go go on the mission in the first place? It wasn't for the goods. It was for the people. Okay, This is a typecast for Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. You can have the goods. All the kingdoms, they're yours. Just worship me. But what is he after? He's after the souls of people. The second king has something different to offer bread and wine, fellowship and communion, and a blessing from God. Isn't that interesting? So these two kings are represent the different poles upon the believer, the follower of God in every age. One towards what you can get in the world, and one towards fellowship and blessing from God. The king of Sodom versus the king of Salem. Abraham took it really seriously because it says in verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my, if you think I'm just you know, this, this is the scripture. It says, Abram, Abram reads this as a temptation. He says, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. In other words, there's only one place I get my riches. That's Yahweh God most high. That's not from any, any, any man of the world. And that, Well, how does Jesus respond to the enemy, right? Same thing that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is said that you should worship the Lord your God and worship Him only, right? That's how, same, same response. He says, I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. Let them have their share. So what made Abraham resilient in the face of this temptation was that he was strengthened when he fellowshiped over bread and wine and received the blessing of the Creator God over the temptation of the flesh and man, right? It's not incred- just, This is incredible. Maybe it's just incredible for geeks like me. But this, this is Melchizedek, the king of Salem. The name Salem means peace, which would later be renamed to Jerusalem. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So Melchizedek is the king of Jerusalem, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, and he comes and communes with Abraham and blesses him. Now Jesus, the true king of righteousness and peace, is our mediator, our priest king, both god and king, who offers us the bread and the wine and fellowship and blessing from god. Isn't that it's just crazy. So in the New Testament, in the New Testament, the authors pick up on this. We have the first mention of bread and wine in the Bible all the way back in Genesis 14, and it is brought by a king of peace and righteousness to commune and fellowship with god instead of receiving the temptation of the world. Amazing. Now, Melchizedek is and will always be a mysterious figure, okay? It's weird because he kind of just pops in and then pops out. He's gone. I'll talk more about that in a minute. In the meantime, what does it mean for us that Jesus has started this new order, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek? First of all, it means absolute hope. Absolute hope. It says in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? This new order of God's salvation is settled and it's not dependent on us. The writer of Hebrews calls this thought of God's faithfulness to His promises and His unchangeable nature an anchor for the soul. Hebrews 6, verses 17 through 20 says, Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, He confirmed it with an oath. God did so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, Numbers 23, we who have fled, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the, inter, the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So that's our hope, that it's finished, it's absolute, it's settled. God doesn't change his mind. He planned on, he planned on this from the foundations of the world. He, he, he promised it at the very beginning of time and then he fulfilled it again and again and again through person after person all the way down to Jesus and now to us as his scepter. It's well documented that while the prisoners of Nazi concentration camps in World War II had some had some hope or had some meaning, they could endure the worst conditions. But oftentimes the Nazi concentration camps were geared towards cracking that hope. One of the ways that they would do this is the guards would send them out to dig a hole. They'd spend all day digging that hole, come in completely exhausted, eat nothing and then wake up the next morning and they'd take them back out and they didn't tell them why they were digging the hole or what the purpose was for digging the hole. And then they would take them back out the next day and they'd say, now fill in the hole. And day after day, they'd dig a hole all day long and then they'd go back out and be required to fill in the hole. Just meaningless and purposeless work. And it was oftentimes while they were out at this hole doing this meaningless and purposeless work, that they would just give up. They would fall down and allow themselves to die. They would make a break for it and try and run and get shot. It was utter meaninglessness and hopelessness. And that's what that does to a person. But what this says is we as Christians have hope independent of ourselves and independent of our circumstances. Jesus assured it. What He said, He will not change His mind. Based on the unchangeable nature of God and His promises, we have been saved And we are secure like an anchor secures a boat in him. And then the other thing that this says is that we have a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we have uh, an eternally present God. Hebrews 7 verses 1 through 3 says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Now this is what's interesting. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, question. Did Melchizedek have no father or mother? What do you think? No, he had he had a father and mother. Okay? I mean, unless he was the son of God, he had a father and mother, right? He wasn't the son of God. So this is not literal, but what it means is the second phrase, without genealogy. Okay? Which is really, really significant in the Hebrew story because they have genealogies about everybody. And, and that's to make sure that you see how the story is connected. But this figure, Melchizedek, is a mystery. And he's the, the king of Jerusalem, the father of Jerusalem in a way. And he just appears and disappears, and yet his blessing is ever-present. His blessing on Abraham becomes the foreshadowing of the covenant that God makes with him in Genesis 15, okay, uh, in, and which fulfills Genesis 12. This ever-present kind of shadow of Melchizedek is all over the Scriptures, even though he's barely mentioned. And eventually, the author of the Hebrews, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, picks up on this. He says, you know what? That's exactly like the Christ. He's always been with us. He shows up in the fiery furnace. He shows up to Rahab in the wilderness. He's all over the scriptures. He's there even though in the Old Testament he's barely mentioned or we don't know who he is or we don't know where he's going to come from. We don't know what he's going to look like exactly and so much so that the very people who were the gatekeepers or to watch for him were the ones who persecuted him and missed him, right? He's a little bit of a mystery but he's always there and he comes and he goes constantly interceding for his people and ensuring that his promise is fulfilled. And now, that's our hope today. That's what he's getting at in Hebrews chapter 7 is, hey, I know that you can't see Jesus, you can't feel Jesus, you sometimes have doubts about Jesus, just like the disciples who actually walked and talked with him every single day for three years did. And it's hard. It feels like, where is he? But his point is, just like Melchizedek appears at the right time, in the right place, to ensure that God's promise to Abraham is carried out and to and offer the blessing of bread and fellowship, Instead of the temptation of the world and flesh and uh, earthly goods, Jesus is faithful to show up for you just at the right time. He's building this whole case that he is the faithful priest forever, that he'll always be there for you. He'll always intercede for you. He'll always give you a way out from temptation. He'll always renew you. He's eternally present and working in your life. As he, if you continue in Hebrews 7, you'll read things like, he is a better hope by which we draw near to God. And because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood and He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. We have a living Savior. He's not in any tomb or grave, but He is a priest forever. Death couldn't hold Him down. He is at the right hand of God and He has given us life. He lives in us and He has given us what we are not by nature through the bread and the fellowship of God. J. Vernon McGee, he says, My friend, that is where we need to put the emphasis. He came down here, died to save us, but He lives up there and is keeping us saved. He is able also to save them to the othermost that came unto God by Him. That's from Hebrews 7. He is able to keep on saving you, in other words. To the uttermost means all the way through. He is able to save us completely and perfectly. He is the great shepherd who up to this very moment has never lost a sheep. He will never stop pursuing you, and he will never stop leading you home. Call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. That's what he says. So he closes then. We have our Lord, our King, our priest. Now there's these verses, verse 5-7. through The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of His wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way, and therefore will lift up His head. From Hebrews to Revelation, right? We go from these grand promises of Jesus to the apocalyptic scenes of Revelation. Derek Kidner, he says, the priest king's enthronement is not the final scene, but the prelude to world conquests, to the coming of the new heaven and the earth. So the baby born in Bethlehem is our king and our priest, and now our victorious warrior. So it talks about the day of his wrath, which is his coming return and the wrath of the lamb. Uh, Revelation 6, 16 and 17 references these verses in talking about this day. As priest, he can be your mediator and advocate, or you can face him as a terrifying judge. That's what this kind of alludes to. There are six things that happen in these verses. First of all, he shatters kingdoms. He executes judgment. It says he heaps up the dead and crushes kings. That's Revelation 19, when the lake of fire, when the, when he casts all the kings and all his enemies uh, into the lake of fire, and it says that the dead on the battlefield, uh, that the that the birds dine on their flesh. It's like the greatest feast for vultures ever I guess basically that's what it references is these verses here he heaps up the dead and crushes kings but then it says something interesting he says he drinks from the brook which is supposed to foreshadow the refreshment after victory and that the river of life is now coming to earth okay and it says he lifts and therefore he lifts up his head and the New Testament says in Romans 8 uh, Paul quotes Psalm, verse, Psalm chapter 3 and says that we also lift up our heads Okay, we also lift up our heads because we triumph in Him. Because we triumph in Him. So, in conclusion, anybody read The Lord of the Rings, seen the movies, The Two Towers, Sam, Samwise, and Frodo are nearing the end of their journey up the mountain to Mordor to throw away the ring, which symbolizes the flesh, like to once and for all throw off the frailty of life into the into the fiery lake. Okay, and. Um, what they don't know is there's a great battle ahead before they can finish their journey. But Sam, it's a moment of peace after they think they've, they've finished it all. And Sam says to Frodo, he says, I wonder what kind of story we've fallen into. I think that's a good question to ask. And I would propose that this is the story that you've fallen into. Right now, the battle rages. But we have the hope of glory we have our king, our priest, and our victorious warrior, and one day the battle will end. And we fight today in the strength of the king, not with weapons, but with the love with love, and gospel hope. We have a great mission, and that is to tell the nations of the prophet, priest, and king, the victorious warrior who grants forgiveness and eternal life to all who call upon him. We tell the nations about this king who reigns all over all and who will establish a new heaven and a new earth. We are like those in verse 3 who willingly offer ourselves up in this mission of love, of service, and of truth until that day happens. That's the kind of story we've fallen into. Eternal hope and an eternal mission. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. It is amazing the way that You have woven together this story and that we now also get to Be woven into that story as we call on your name and as we depend on you and as we offer our bodies uh, as living sacrifices because of the hope and the anchor and the refreshment that you have given us even as we face storms and trials in this life. God, I just pray that the the richness of your story, the power uh, of the truth within it would strengthen us for uh, the rest of the week ahead and that we would be intentional in the way that we live to testify to these things and all that you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen.